that I get to see you all. That I'm not viewing any of you. We ought to be thankful for each day that the Lord gives us. Every day is a day of God's grace. Every day is a day of God's blessing and his mercy and his loving kindness for us. He holds our today in the palm of his hand. The Bible declares that we ought to rejoice in the day, for it is the day the Lord has made. And you ought to be glad in it. Hallelujah. How many of you have had days where you woke up where you didn't feel so glad? Hallelujah. You woke up realizing there were some things you were going to face in the day that didn't make you too happy. But the Bible declares that we ought to rejoice and be glad in each day because that day is the day the Lord has made. Hallelujah. The, there is no exception. There is no escape clause. Hallelujah. If we are truly believers of God, that we know that even our crisis in every day that we face is in the hands of God. And if it's in the hands of God and God's plan is to prosper me and to make me who I need to be, then even my crisis is something for which I can be glad in. Hallelujah. Turn with me in the word of God to the book of Genesis. For those of you that haven't looked at your Bible in a while, Genesis is the very first book in the Bible. Flip past the writer and publisher information. It's like two or three pages in. Uh, you should get to Genesis. We're going to go to the third chapter. We will read for your hearing the first through the sixth verse. Again, that is the book of Genesis, the third chapter, the first through the sixth verse. The word of the Lord reads like this. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And the woman said, or and the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat. And gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Oh God. You may be seated. 
if you've spent any amount of time at all watching the news of the day, there's one certainty in this world that we are all or should all be aware of. This world is full of lawlessness, crime, immorality, adultery, drugs, drunkenness, lying, stealing, cheating, greed, covetousness, extravagance, indulgence, murder, assaults, and that's just the name a few of the sins and evil that are before us. It almost makes you believe that this is just the way things are because it has been the way things have always been. In fact, many of us have become desensitized by the experience of our human existence in a very brutal and immoral worldly climate. But reading the word of God, I find that this has not always been true of the human existence. There was a time when the world was perfect. A time when there was not a single act of violence or evils on the earth. In fact, an evil deed had never even been committed. The earth itself was perfect. Both man and woman were sinless. They knew only harmony and peace, satisfaction, fulfillment, love, joy, all the fullness of life prevailed. Perfection reigned the earth. As a good friend of mine and brother in bonds, Bill Page would say, what in the ham sandwich happened? What is it that could destroy the perfection humanity was created in and cause such a devastation and exact such lawlessness in the land? What could have such an influence that it would corrupt even the very heart of man? The Bible declares that the heart of man is wicked. It's so wicked that man himself can't even know it, only God. I believe that these passages of scripture that I have re uh, read to you this morning reveal the naked truth, the cause and effect of temptation and sin. The passage that I read when I opened this morning is revelatory unveiling of what is now called the first temptation. Amen. Which led to man's fall from a perfect state of being. Uh -huh. This is the origin of our initial steps into sin. If you analyze the text, you'll find that there are a total of eight steps that are detailed in the text, and these steps have been repeated with great tenacity throughout the ages of mankind. I'm going to say these for you. I encourage you to write them down. Some of you may be experiencing them even now. The first step is the invitation. The second is being confronted with suggestive, enticing, and tempting 
thoughts. The third is entertaining or harboring or discussing those suggestive thoughts. The fourth, fourth is doubting the consequences of what God's word has declared. The fifth, thinking that you will be more fulfilled that you will gain and benefit more by committing what you've been invited to commit. Six, lust. Looking and desiring after the invitation itself. Seven, fulfilling that lust, which is displayed as the taking and eating or the ingesting of what has been forbidden to you. And lastly, you're leading others to sin. The Bible refers to you then as being a stumbling block to your brothers. Over the next few moments, I want to discuss this pattern of behavior that many of us have been repeating as if we were pre-programmed to function in this manner, when in fact, your original programming is everything opposite this pernicious life has become. Many of us are so blind to our failure that we repeat our past mistakes, well. endure like frustration and pain, live confused lives where our hope is just out of our reach and only relive nightmarish existences once we experience the deliverance we've been seeking. This is affecting every facet of our lives and it is becoming more and more difficult to see, let alone deal with, which is exactly why there's so much discord in the body of Christ. Amen. Where believers are disparaged against their brothers and sisters. The example of Christ was love, grace, and forgiveness. But our example pales in comparison most of the time. And we wonder why the world scoffs at us so-called believers. Let me start at step one. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. If you don't mind, I'll take a little bit of time to deal with step one instead of just blowing past it as if step one in itself is inconsequential to our failing. Too many of us already blow past this step right now. Some of you may be wondering what I mean. Well, many in the body of Christ are dancing with the devil in the pale moonlight. Well, amen. We've accepted false belief that we're even leading the dance step when really we're simply being led around by our nose. When I think about this verse, I find it to be very striking. This appearance of the serpent tempting this perfect woman is a shocking scene. It, it, it's a drastic turn of events that's taking place. And she, even 
in her perfect state was oblivious to what was happening. Many of us are dealing right now with the consequences of what we have been blinded to see. And as we look at this encounter, what is it that we truly see? Well, God just created the universe. And what did God say about the universe, First Lady? It was good. Everything God made was good. <laughs> Scripture is pointedly clear about this. God oh, was geez. well pleased. He was perfectly satisfied. His creation was perfect. It had been perfect because God, the sovereign Lord and majesty of the universe, can't create anything imperfect. God had also created the Garden of Eden specifically for man, the most perfect place imaginable for man to live. Now, if you look at the text, you'll find that there was a time when man lived outside the Garden of Eden. We don't know how long that was, but I believe it was long enough for Adam to realize the blessing of the garden once he was planted there. You'll find that the Bible tells us God created Adam from the earth and then he planted Adam in the garden. That tells us that Adam was not created in the garden. He was placed in the garden and created elsewhere. This would cause Adam to know what life outside of the garden would be. Everything in the garden was ideal. It was perfect. It was man's utopia, man's very paradise. Adam would nor could want anything more. But then it happened. Yeah, you felt this feeling before and some of you have felt this feeling as recently as just a couple days ago. You know, it's that churning in your stomach that screams, where is this going? And out of nowhere, something terrible happens. Evil makes its appearance in the form of an evil creature. Where in the world did this creature come from? Was not man in the Garden of Eden, in paradise, itself a place of perfection? Yes. The answer to this question is profoundly yes. God did create all things good and he did give man paradise in which to live. But if this is so, who is this evil creature and where does this creature come from? I've heard even lifelong believers struggle with this question. How did he get upon the earth? How did he enter into the Garden of Eden, the paradise of earth, the place of perfection? God wanted us to know because in the revelation of this first step, the invitation, he could give us what we needed to avert disaster in our lives. You see, most of us, we get the answer at the end of the equation when God is giving us the answer at the very beginning. Amen. Amen. 
for many of us, when we realize we are in sin, it's too late because the act has already been done. This revelation will show you how you can avoid the initial step. And if you avoid the pitfall of step one, you can avoid all the remaining seven steps in their entirety. Now, there are seven revelations about step one that I want to leave with you today, if I can make it through it. I know I have a very short time period in which to release this to you before your mind starts asking that age-old question, what time is it? Well, <laughs> step one. Scripture tells us that the devil, Satan himself, is called the serpent. The Bible reveals in Revelation 12 and 9, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, I know the human, how the human mind works and what some of you may be thinking right now. Asking yourself this question in your thought life, does this mean that Satan possessed or energized a real living serpent or spoke through this serpent? Or does it mean that Satan actually transformed himself into a serpent like the NIV seems to interpret? Or does it mean that the serpent is only a reference to Satan, whose very name is that old serpent called the devil and Satan? Could this just be a picture of the devil? Well, in determining just who or what the serpent is or was, there are some biblical facts that need to be studied to get the right answer. The serpent, when first created, apparently walked upright and was a most magnificent creature. You'll read about that in Genesis 3 and 14. This is either symbolic language referring to Satan. You can see in Genesis 3 and 15, there is definitely symbolism as it definitely refers to Satan. Or it is literal language referring to an actual serpent. If it is literal, then Genesis 3.15 switches to symbolic language. The craftiness of the serpent is compared to the craftiness of the beast of the field. Scripture says that the serpent was more subtle, that simply means crafty, clever, shrewd, than any of the animals on the earth. <coughs> This is either a comparison of Satan's craftiness to the craft, craftiness of the animals or of the craftiness of one animal to the craftiness of other animals. Scripture gives examples where Satan had the power to use people as his tools and speak through them. Peter in Matthew 16, 22 through 23. Demon-possessed people, Matthew 8, 28 through 34, Acts 16, 16 through 18. These are just some examples of 
the devil using things in creation to carry out his task. All creation was created perfect by God, even the serpent. If we say that the serpent was a literal serpent used as an evil tool by Satan, then we have a problem explaining how creation was perfect. How could an animal be used as an evil tool in a world of perfect animals? This is the reason some interpreters say that Satan actually transformed or cloned himself as a serpent. This is what I believe. You see, creation was good, creation was perfect in the eyes of God. For corruption to enter, that is the lacking of will, then there had to be imperfection. And if there was imperfection, then creation as a perfect state is a lie. The word of God is clear. Lucifer has the power of transformation and can cause you to see him in a manner like creation itself. Animals did not have the gift of choice like the angels or like man. It is the ability of choice that separates us from the animal kingdom. We are higher in intellect and therefore we react to intelligible decisions and not created patterns of behavior. We do things because of decisions that we make, not because of patterns that exist in our own existence. Jesus Christ himself tells us that Satan was behind the tragic fall of man. John 8 and 44 says, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. Paul also says that Satan was behind the fall of man in 2 Corinthians where it reads, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety so your mind should be corrupted by the simplicity that is in Christ. Amen. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Amen. Paul also says in Romans 16 and 20, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Paul is referring to the text in 3.15 in Genesis. The one that we are beginning to examine today. All right. You see, the devil was the very first transformer. Amen. <laughs> you thought it was Optimus Prime. Well. But the devil was the initial transformer. Amen. I used to, when I looked at the movie Transformer, it used to puzzle me that if you remember the movie, for those of you that have seen it, the AllSpark, which was the big cube-looking thing, mm -hmm. was what they said the Transformers came from. So all that creation 
was created from the allspark. <laughs> Yet every time the allspark created something, when it would be touched, if it touched the soda machine, the soda machine would become a transformer. It seemed like they were always evil. And I used to wonder, well, where did Optimus Prime and all his people come from? If they all came from the Allspark and everything the Allspark touches seems to always be evil or turn into a Decepticon. Just some random thoughts. Let's get back to the lesson. Scripture says that Satan had been the most exalted angel that was ever created by God. He was the most beautiful. He was the most intelligent. He was the strong, mighty. He was created in a manner in which he could carry God's glory into creation. God created him to rule as the highest of all created beings. His particular reign and rule for God was over the earth and the universe, over the physical and material world and the dimension of being. But Satan did the same thing that all men have done. He fell short of God's glory and sin. He began to look at himself and he began to want to live like he wanted to live instead of like God wanted him to live. How many of you have looked at yourself and said, I want to live like I want to live? Not like God wants me to live. We think the selfie was created after the explosion of Facebook, but in actuality, Lucifer was taking snapshots of himself long before we had computers to share what is actually now diagnosed as a mental health disease. Well, yes, it's been suggested by some mental health professionals that people who take selfie after selfie and post it for all the world to see on a constant basis are actually suffering from a mental health breakdown. Let's take a look at Lucifer. You'll find that he wanted to rule and reign over the universe like he wanted, not like God wanted. He wanted to rule without answering to God. He wanted to possess the ultimate authority over the world. He wanted to be the supreme ruler of the earth and the physical universe. In a sense, some of this sounds like us today. Our main push in society is against authority. If you take a look at all the things that have been happening over the last couple months, this is a rebellion against authority. The idea that no one has the right to determine what I can and can't do, so I challenge authority, I challenge rules, over my own desires. Satan wanted the very same thing that human nature has wanted down through history, to be his own boss, to do his own thing, well, to control his own life, 
to determine his own truth. Satan wanted what so many power-hungry people in our own society have wanted down through history, to be the sovereign ruler over nations and over the lives of people. And this is what scripture means when it reveals what Satan said in Isaiah 14, 13 through 14, thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. That's God's position of rule and authority over the universe. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation. That's the place to be honored and praised, adored and worshiped by the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. That's God himself. Simply put, Satan rebelled against God. Consequently, God has no choice but to cast Satan down from his exalted position in heaven. His sin caused his demise just like our sin has caused our own fall from exalted position. You see, man in creation was the crown of God's creation. But sin caused us to fall. You see, originally, when Satan ruled as the highest of all created beings, his name was Lucifer, which means star of the morning. He was the anointed cherub who covered the very throne of God himself. He was the angel in charge of the glory of God's very own throne throughout the physical and material universe. But if you look at the scripture, you see that there's a double reference being referred to both as an earthly king and to Satan himself. Let me read the text for you. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. That's Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. Now Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19 goes into much greater detail. But for the sake of time, read that text on your own. Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19. It gives you a more dynamic picture of what is going on. But there's one other significant fact that I have to point out. Jesus Christ himself said that the Isaiah passage was speaking about Satan. You see, Jesus quotes Isaiah 14 and 12 in referencing Satan in Luke 10 and 18. You see, Isaiah 14 and 12 says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nation? And Jesus says in Luke 10 and 18, And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning falling from heaven. Amen. You see, the Bible teaches that Satan has uh, some control over the earth. He has access and authority to influence the world and to influence mankind. History, the destruction and devastation of nature, terrible evil that mankind has committed, all of this shows the domain of the devil, which includes the earth and this universe. That's both the physical and the material world or dimension of being. The question then should arise, 
When did Satan get access and control of the earth and the universe? God certainly did not create the universe and put Satan and his evil force in charge of it. The only living and true God, the supreme Lord and majesty of the universe, who is the God of perfection and love, could never create evil nor put evil in charge of perfect creation. This would be totally against the very nature of God. I'm going to touch upon this characteristic when I get to the sixth point. But for now, the fact to see is the control and authority that the devil possesses in the world. Scripture says this. Satan is the God of this world. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the mind of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4. Scripture calls Satan the prince, not of Bel Air, but of the world. John 12 and 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. John 14 and 30, hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and has nothing in me. John 16 and 11, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Scripture also calls Satan the prince of the power of of the air, Ephesians 2 and 2, where in time past she walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Scripture, scripture calls Satan the ruler of the darkness of this world. Ephesians 6 and 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You see, Satan is the king of a kingdom. Matthew 12 and 26, and if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then his kingdom stands? Matthew 4, 8 through 9 says, And again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them, and said unto him, All these things I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. You think Satan doesn't have a full grip on everything that's going on? Satan has a grip on the whole world. John 5 and 19 says, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. You see, the Bible teaches that Satan struggles and fights against God and against the will of God. Satan's purpose in fighting God is actually twofold. First, Satan's purpose is power and worship. He wants to receive as much power and worship of the universe as is possible. He goes about this in at least three different ways. First, he opposes and disturbs the work of God in the world. That means he's messing with the church. He discourages believers through various strategies. We'll get into those later. Lastly, he arouses God's justice against people by leading people to sin and then, and then deny and rebel against God. And when they do, God's justice has to act and uh, the judge has to come and judge people to the fate of their own choice. 
That is their desire to live with Satan eternally. Because God will not be mocked. We have to understand what the enemy is doing. Second, Satan's purpose is to hurt and cut the very heart of God. He doesn't like God. Because God judged and condemned him for rebelling against him. And because of this, Satan does everything he can do to get back at God. Sounds like some of us in the church. The best way that the devil can do this is to turn the hearts of people away from God and lead them to sin and to follow the way of evil. So the point is this. When did evil enter the world? How did Satan get access to and control of the world? This much I can say now. God would certainly not create the universe and then put Satan in charge of it. This would be totally contrary to the very nature of a sovereign God, of the majesty of the universe, whose very nature is love and perfection. So Satan's history must therefore precede man. Satan's creation and fall happened before man was created. So in the eons of past history, when Satan was created as the highest of the angelic beings, he must have been placed in charge of the earth, even as man was later to be placed in charge of the earth. But just as man was to sin and fall, so Satan sinned and fell. Just as God has not yet utterly destroyed man, so God did not utterly destroy Satan. Not yet. Just as God still has a purpose for man, so God still has a purpose for the devil. Satan would be used by God to test man, to give man the opportunity to choose God, to exercise the gift of free will to obey and follow God instead of disobeying and rejecting God. Remember, we as a sinful human being still have the right to roam about the universe. So Satan as a sinful spiritual being still has the right to roam about the earth and universe. God's purpose for creation will not be stopped, neither by man nor by Satan and his evil spirits. Not until God's purpose is fulfilled. God is going to have a race of people with free wills, a race of people who will choose to love and follow him supremely. So the point that I am making, the best explanation as to where Satan and evil entered the world is that of the scripture, that of the Holy Bible, not the conjectures of men as covered in some of the points that I have based upon this study. You see, man had to be tempted in order to exercise free will. You cannot live free will if you don't have choice. Amen. So that tells me that in everything in life, choice is present. You will always have, at the very least, two choices that are in stark contrast to themselves. One will have you go left, 
the other will have you go right. Rarely will your choices be very closely connected to where you cannot tell which choice you've made. God established in creation, the creation of man, the ability to choose. The only way you can choose something is if you have another option. So God has to create a situation whereby we could exercise our will to either obey or disobey God. There was no better way than to demand that man not eat from one of the trees in the garden. But I want you to remember this. Man was created perfect. Perfectly sinless. Perfectly innocent. Man had no idea what temptation and sin were. Man had perfect access and fellowship with God. And in this perfect state of innocence and sinlessness, there was no way man was going to act against God. So for man to exercise his free will, something other than God telling Adam not to eat from a single tree would be needed. Temptation was needed or the arousal of a suggestive thought. This is why temptation exists. This is the reason that God allowed the devil to tempt Eve. You see, Satan's temptation was needed for man to exercise his will to choose God. God needed men to understand that you can either accept or reject his own desire or obey and follow God. Now, Satan had the right to tempt Eve, but he did not have the power to make Eve sin. It's important that you understand this. Temptation is waiting for a power to be added to it. Temptation is waiting for a power to be added to it. Temptation of itself is powerless. Amen. See, most of us, uh, we like to say, I, I, I couldn't help it when a temptation comes and you do something that you, you know, find not very convenient for yourself to do. And we say we can't help it when, in fact, every temptation has no power attached to it. If power is attached to temptation, then your ability to exercise your free will is limited. God created temptation without power so you can exercise your power to decide which will you would follow. Temptation has no power. Well, now when the devil tempts Eve, he doesn't have the power to make Eve sin. Eve has to use her own power to choose to sin or to continue as an innocent creation. 
She exercises her free will by choosing to follow Satan and his own lust. You see, the temptation was from Satan arousing lust within her, but the sin was of her own free will and choice. The sin was of her own free will and choice. The devil cannot make you do anything. Everything you do, you do of your own volition. You do because you've listened to the desires of your flesh or you've listened to the desires of the Spirit of God that is in you. Let me move towards my clothes for today. I ask you this question. Anytime you have to make a choice, you pretty much you weigh things out in your mind. The consequences, the benefits, the good, the bad, the cost. As we move further in this, I want you to understand that you can stop repeating your failure. Amen. I need to point out to you what happens when you disregard the instructions of God or ignoring what God is saying. You're sucked in by the invitation. And when you open the invitation, temptation enters the game. And the first step in temptation involves your thoughts. Now there's a very powerful psychological phenomenon used by salespeople to get you as a consumer to buy things, even things you don't want. Even things you weren't looking for. It is the power of suggestive thinking. Yeah, that's it. You see, suggestive thinking is the foundational power of temptation which leads to enticing you to draw you away from the very things that you know. Let me remind you of the text. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the tree of the uh, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God hath uh, known that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now, there are several striking things that I immediately noticed about Eve and the temptation that attacked her. First off, Eve was alone. She had gone off without her husband, Adam, at least at the beginning of this conversation with the serpent. Now, I know what many of you are getting ready to ask. How do I know she was alone? Well, since you thought it, let me clear up your confusion. Come on. So you want to know for sure if Adam was with Eve when the serpent deceived her from eating the forbidden fruit. Being that we have some Bible scholars 
listening today who will undoubtedly quickly point to the third chapter of Genesis and the sixth verse where it says, and she and uh, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now most of you know I investigate misconduct and criminal activity. In the process of investigating, I have learned that you can't just hang your hat on the first hook that seems to support your original thoughts or hypothesis. You have to search for the clues we all call evidence which will qualify your hypothesis. If I only read that very small detail in the story, it would give the impression I have an open and shut case and can undeniably and irrevocably prove that Adam was with Eve the entire time. But like the songwriter wrote, hold up, wait a minute, I need to put my two cents in it. Let me re-examine the text in context to what's actually happening so I can show you what it really says. Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said unto the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did not say you must not eat from the tree which is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will surely die or you will not surely die, the serpent says to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for good, uh, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, the first piece of evidence is found in verse 1, where it says that the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, think for a minute. Would you consider it crafty? if the serpent had approached both Adam and Eve at the same time? I think not. It would be more logical and make more sense to entice people one at a time rather than a group. And if you pay close attention to those who have fallen in the body, you will find that many of them were first drawn away into isolation. This is why you experience a desire in yourself to isolate yourself from your brothers and sisters when you think things are not going the way they should. Many can't even explain what it is that caused them to feel as if they needed to get alone. But when you stand alone, you do just that. You stand alone. And when you're alone, you're easier prey to deal with. The wolf looks for the sheep that slips off on its own and does not often attack an entire herd. Because the herd can gang up against it. But the one who is off by themselves 
becomes dinner without the hassle of a real fight. When you look at the consequences of these verses as presented, they seem as if the actions are continuous from the serpent's deception until Eve eats the fruit. I feel you. It isn't looking good for Eve being alone. However, when you read on down to verse 6, you will find something very peculiar that's interjected. It begins with the word when. This implies that the preceding conversation happened some time before Eve actually went to the tree in the middle of the garden. Now, I know what you're thinking. Come on, Bishop, that sounds a little suspect and circumstantial. Well, this is why I'm a good investigator. I keep going until there is a mountain of evidence which points me in one direction or another. So let me uh, get back to the text real quick. The next thing that you will notice about the passage is that Adam is not mentioned until he is presented with the fruit to eat. If he was really with Eve and the serpent, why didn't he say anything at all? I know I would not let just anybody talk to first lady. Some of you in relationships may be experiencing trouble simply because you just let anybody talk to your lover and can't understand why you're dealing with the fallout of drama from an influence, uh, influential conversation that you are not around to stop. You see, my duty as a husband is to cover my wife and protect her, which includes protection from outer influence, which is in conflict with the direction or the flow of our love. Uh, but that's a message for another day. I digress. I digress. You would have thought that Adam would have at least supported his wife when she mentioned God saying not to eat of the fruit. But the absence of any input from Adam seems very suspicious to me. But it's still not enough for me to emphatically say one way or another if he was there. So in my continued study of the word of God, I have found out that the Bible sometimes leaves out the intricate detail in order to be brief. I don't know about you, but First Lady is into details. She's not looking for the Reader's Digest version of my daily experiences. She wants all the access, the Encyclopedia Britannica version in every volume. Now, to fill in some of these gaps in detail, we must continue reading then what happens next. Of course, Adam and Eve were caught, and God questions them about what happened. God started with Adam, so I'm going to start with Adam. First, God asks him this, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Don't you love it when God asks questions he already knows the answer to? Well, the man says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. See, Adam's response is to blame Eve for giving him the fruit which, if you read between the lines, was ultimately an accusation against God. Who gave Eve to him? So if Adam had been with Eve at the time the serpent was deceiving them, you would think he would have blamed the serpent. But when God asked Eve, she did blame the serpent. Adam blames Eve, 
and Eve blamed the serpent. Uh, the, the word of the Lord says this in Genesis 3 and 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So Eve blames the serpent. Adam blames Eve, making it sound like they were not together when the serpent was tempting Eve because there were no, now multiple suspects. You see, uh, there is a, uh, an even bigger piece of evidence that follows, and I want to point out that uh, this is what we call the game changer. Uh, Adam, uh, to, God, to Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife. Watch it. Listen to your wife. Who was doing the talking initially? Who gave the invitation to eat the fruit of the tree? Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil. You will eat of it all the days of your life. You see, God seems to have been in on a conversation that we never heard in the original passage of Scripture. You see, in the conversation with the serpent, Eve simply embellished what God had told Adam about not eating from the tree in the middle of the garden. She never said that the serpent was right at that time. So it seems that after Eve left, the serpent, she had a conversation with Adam convincing him that the forbidden fruit was actually good. Adam was not condemned for being deceived by the serpent, but for believing what his wife said instead of holding true to what God said. Uh, I feel a sidebar moment coming in on me. Let me move on. What I've shown you clearly implies that Adam and Eve had a conversation between Genesis 3 and 5 and Genesis 3 and 6 in which she convinces Adam to eat the forbidden fruit. Adam wouldn't have needed convincing if he had been with Eve during Satan's conversation with her. I hear you yelling, objection, objection. Will I declare you overruled? Because I got some more stuff for you. Besides Genesis, there are some other clues that tell us that Adam was not with Eve during the serpent's deception. What do you see? What do you see? Uh, the Apostle Paul said Eve was deceived by the serpent in 2 Corinthians 11 and 3. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Uh, I, I really like Brother Paul. Paul gets even more specific in 1 Timothy where he says, when Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. 1 Timothy 2 and 14. So if Adam had been with Eve during the serpent's deception, Paul could not have said that Adam was not deceived. So we must conclude then that Adam was not with Eve during the serpent's deception, else he would have been deceived by the serpent 
or he would have stopped Eve from eating the fruit in the first place and made for himself a cool pair of snakeskin shoes. Right. I like it. I like it. I take it. Yeah. I think I'll rest my case right there, airtight, and the jury says convicted. I don't have time to break this down like I really want to. So let me just quickly summarize before I close today. Although it's not directly stated in the Bible, I've pointed out numerous clues that should tell you what happened when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and eat of the forbidden fruit. This crafty serpent waited for Eve to be alone before approaching her to convince her to disobey God and eat the forbidden fruit. Eve experiences step one of our failure, the invitation. And when she took the invitation, she quickly falls through all the remaining steps. And if that wasn't bad enough, sometime later, she jumps into step eight. Because Eve takes Adam to the tree in the middle of the garden and convinced him that the fruit was good to eat, which culminated in the fulfillment, the fulfillment of step eight, which is getting others to sin. When Adam and Eve were caught in their sin by God, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent. The New Testament confirms that only Eve was deceived by the serpent, demonstrating that Adam was not with her when the serpent approached her. I again rest my case. If you want to file a dissenting opinion with this court, be my guest. You see, Eve ended up where she did not belong. She was standing by the forbidden tree. This is the problem that we have in the body of Christ. Too many of us find ourselves in places where we should not be. Uh -oh. You keep going to places you need to avoid. You keep hanging around people you need to stay away from. Oh, I'm just trying to minister God's grace and love to them while the whole time they're ministering evil to you. While you're there, you become influenced by what's happening. Eve was apparently thinking about the tree and its delicious-looking fruit. Eve was not keeping a watchful eye against the invitation to temptation. And what makes me say this is that Eve was thinking about this delicious fruit because of what Adam, or I mean, I'm sorry, what Satan says to Eve. Yea, or indeed, has God said you must not eat from every tree of the garden. Now, the very first word, yea, indeed, strongly suggests that Eve was thinking about the tree. At that very moment, while she was thinking about it, Satan attacked her. He caught her in her thoughts. Yea, indeed, how good it looks. Has God said you must not eat from every tree of the garden? Here's where his craftiness comes in. Satan misquoted God's word. Amen. You see, God had said that man could eat from every tree in the garden except one. You see, God is good, extremely good. Man had everything he could ever want. All the fruit except one tree. 
All the trees would benefit man, but the forbidden tree would destroy man. Now, you ever wonder why for so many years you always seem to want what is not yours or want what you cannot have? It's ingrained in the makeup of a fallen nature of mankind. Watch what Satan did. He questioned Eve. Yeah, indeed, has God said, you must not eat from every tree. The thought is being planted in the mind of Eve. There is a spiritual implantation going on and many people miss it. This is why you must guard what you listen to, including music, which enters the soul of man without an invitation or any resistance. There is a spiritual power at work that's expressing itself in time and space. That spiritual power is suggestive thought. This is what it does to Eve. It caused her to begin believing that she was missing out on something. It caused her to begin to believe that the most delicious fruit was the one that was being withheld. It caused her to believe that something good was being kept from her. It caused her to believe that she must not miss what looked good and probably would feel and taste good. You see, this is the first step in temptation. The step involves our thought life. The Bible implores us to keep our minds or thoughts, what? Focused. Philippians 4, 8-9 Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you the thought of suggestion. The suggested thought is that we are missing something that looks, feels, tastes, smells good. That perhaps the word of God is causing us to miss something that is delicious. You see, too many of us get alone or away from our loved ones and we go into places that we should not be. And tragically, even husbands and wives do this. You see, God called us one so that we would have the understanding that it is when we are together that we are strong but isolated and alone you are weak and vulnerable you become an easy target when there is no one watching your back you don't have eyes behind your head unless you are standing with someone who is covering your rear side. It's your rear that is so inviting for the enemy when there is no one guarding it. He'll sneak up on you and take what he wants from you before he ever gets in there. You're in a fight and don't even realize it's a fight for your life because the devil is stealthy like that. But God, in his grace, created for me a technology called 
rear-facing radar, and its name is Stephanie Lyson. You see, I've got somebody in my life that's watching my backside so the devil can't sneak up behind me where I'm not looking and let me make decisions. Rear-facing radar. Most advanced technology God has given to man the ability to be surrounded with sight all around you. Oh, I wish I could go. Why not? I wish you would. We have to understand what's going on. And why we are constantly facing the same fight. Yes. We come to church, we get the hands laid on us and but drowned in oil. olive oil. And we're told, we're prophesied to that we're delivered, we're healed, we're set free. But we continue to struggle with the very same struggle. I've come to the understanding that if I constantly struggle with something, then I'm not delivered right. from something. We need to stop prophesying to people and tell them, folks, they're delivered. When you know good and well, they're not delivered. Because if they don't change, deliverance cannot come. Because God will never usurp your free will. You have to determine in yourself. I am now different. When you determine the difference is when real deliverance happens. Some of you might not like this. The power to enter or turn away from sin is in you. You have the power. We don't even realize when people talk about free will, we don't even realize what that really means. We, we just think it's, a, yeah, well, we can decide what we do. You don't understand that free will is actually your ultimate power. You have, to, you have to come to the understanding that God placed in you the ability to deny the enemy. Yes. Amen. Amen. He said resist him. If I don't have a choice, I can't resist anybody. Amen. If I don't have a choice, if I don't have power to go left or right, then I can only go one way or the other. Animals are conditioned to respond to life through behavior modification. This is why you can take a wild animal and over time train them to do the things that you want. 
But in the order of creation, only man has the intellect that gives them the ability to go opposite their nature. If you didn't have the ability to go opposite your nature, you'd be lost forever because your nature is wickedness. The Bible says you were born in sin and shaped in iniquity. So there has to be something for which you can go opposite of what your nature is. Now watch this. The Bible says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. So when you look at man in the order of creation, God empowers man by invitation, just like the devil empowers man by an invitation. You see, the the enemy does everything that God does. He tries to corrupt what God has already done. So as God has given us the invitation to Jesus, the enemy gives us the invitation to reject Christ. And soon will come the invitation to accept the Antichrist. For those of us who have rejected Christ and are still here in the earth during the time of God's judgment against the earth. Now I won't be here. I can't speak for anybody else. I can talk for my wife. She won't be here, and I won't be here. But see, God wants you to understand that the ultimate authority has been granted to you. Amen. That means you have the authority to pray for your enemies. That's against your nature. You see, your nature wants you to choke your enemy out. But God has given you the authority and the power within yourself to pray for your enemy. Do you understand that God, that when Jesus says, if you are slapped on one side of the face, turn to the other, that if you didn't have the power within yourself to do that, Jesus was just a liar? That means that in you, you always have the ability to exercise power over every invitation. I tell preachers all the time, preachers that come up under me, I tell them all the time, just because you're invited to preach somewhere doesn't mean you ought to go. When I was coming up, I had some of the old, older uh, preachers before me. They would tell me all the time, son, just because you're hot and on fire right now doesn't mean that every invitation you get, you've got to go. There's some places you need to go and there's some places you're being set up. And you've got to learn to discern the difference. Now, of course, when you're young and you want to preach, you're like, ah, those old folk don't know what they're talking about. It's an opportunity to preach the word of God. I'm going to go. So what really am I saying? I want to do it my way, not God's way. Just because the invitation comes does not mean the invitation is from God. And you've got to understand, discern the difference. 
Not everything that glitters is gold. No. Not everything that's blinging is diamonds. You have to understand this. They got fake gold that glitters just like real gold until you put it under something. Until well. it gets wet and leaves that green aura around your skin. Cubic zirconias look really good until you actually look at them through real life. Amen. You got to understand, people of God, that in you, God has created a power to always choose who you're going to listen to. Stop falling for the invitation. And you won't have to worry about the remaining seven steps of the process of sin. If you could avoid step one by making the right choice, you will never deal with the rest. But next week, we'll talk about the rest. For those of you that missed, as often we do, the invitation. Because too often... You realize you were invited only after you have arrived. Well. <laughs> Hallelujah. I'm just going to stop right there. God loves you so much. That when you lacked ability, he gave you ability. Through the indwelling of a spirit in you. That you could always be led to him. As you examine yourself and apply today's lesson to your life. Allow the spirit of God in you to reveal to you where you are at in the process. Understanding where you are is vital to your success the bible tells us that we're not ignorant of his devices yeah. that means we understand his strategy and process to lead us away from our victory that is already won for us see some of us think that we have to fight when in actuality the fight has already been fought The Bible declares this life I now live, I live through the power of Christ that is in me. I have died and he is alive. So that I can now be what he is. Well, what is he? He is triumphant and true. Given all power, his enemies are crushed under his feet and he's seated at the right hand of God. That means that right now, if I am what he is, I am triumphant. My enemies are crushed under my feet, and I'm seated at the right hand of God. If the word of God be true. And I believe that it is. Amen. Hallelujah. I want to encourage you. Take a listen again to this study. It's recorded. It's out there. Listen to it over and over. 
until you garner a full understanding of what the enemy is doing to deceive you and how many of you are being deceived because you've allowed yourself to become isolated. Stop standing alone. See, sometimes we think we need to get over our brothers and sisters in Christ who have wronged us when in actuality you need to get over yourself. If you would get over yourself, you'd find that you'd be able to stand with the very people that you say annoy the mess out of you. Amen. We may not always like what each other does, but to him who has been forgiven should understand forgiveness Amen. and exercise forgiveness always in the deportment of their living. Let's look to heaven. Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word of truth. And as many of us are in different portions of our journey with you, different levels of understanding, different places of revelation, we ask that you would fill us right where we are at and move us from glory to glory. Make clear your word. That as we analyze it and apply it to our life, we would be more reflective of who you are and less reflective of who we are. That glory would be magnified in and through us into all the world. That when the world sees us, they would not see us, but they would see you. We thank you for your grace and truth, your mercy, and your forgiveness. Where we have failed you, we have an advocate with the Father, your dear Son, that I might declare I am the redeemed of the Lord. For I have accepted who and what Jesus is. Forever to be in your hands, standing in eternity with you. But the now between today and then troubles me greatly. But I have peace in you. A peace not like the world gives, but a peace like only you give. That even in our current state of affairs, I can be at rest. Having my confidence in you. Covering, protection, healing, love like I've never experienced before. So I thank you now by faith for these very things. Father, look upon your children and the petitions that are upon their heart. You know what it is they're dealing with, what the struggle is in their life, the petitions they have before you. You are the answer. You are the key. You are the resource. You are the deliverance. You are the healing. You are the grace. Your grace truly is sufficient for us. So I thank you now by faith for my brothers and sisters that the very things they're laboring against, they would experience great victory. That they would come and testify of your mercy in their life. Of doors open, ways made, healings had. Subdue the work of the devil. Every spirit power that stands against the righteousness of your truth, Father, we declare our victory in you.
over it. And we thank you for it. Father, add to this work daily such as should be saved. Let us be willing and able to receive in grace and humility and love those to whom you said. That we might minister to them and love on them even as you have ministered to us and loved on us. We thank you now for increased overflow and more than enough. In the mighty name of Jesus. Father, as you take us from this place. Break not the fellowship of your spirit with us. But take us into our respective homes and destinations in safety and in care. And bring us back together at the next appointed time. That we might hear from you. That we might worship you. That we might sing songs of praise. That we might dance in jubilee. And celebrate the goodness that is the Lord. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. The study for this Tuesday, uh, as we've been talking, um, or not this Tuesday, but the following Tuesday, will be on the first three chapters of the book, The Bait of Satan. Yeah. Read chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then we will break that down and discuss it uh, next Tuesday. This Tuesday is just giving you the time to read and to study. We'll have a different lesson for you this Tuesday. I encourage you, please, tune in to Bible study. Amen. You can do it from anywhere. Amen. So rarely do we have an excuse to not tune in. Amen. You can do it while you're sick. Because you don't have to go anywhere and worry about infecting anybody. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. So I encourage you, tune in. Take a part. Enjoy the study of the Word of God. Amen. Because the more you study the Word, the easier life will become for you. Amen. So again, remember the first three chapters, the bait of Satan, and we will discuss that next Tuesday. God bless you. Enjoy your day. Amen. Amen. Amen.